What's up, everyone? You're listening to the Anthro Alert podcast, which is the recording of our live show, Anthro Alert. You can now listen at your leisure and at your convenience. If you're new here on Anthro Alert, this is where Renee and I, your hosts, and sometimes a guest, analyze, break down, and discuss different topics each week anthropologically. Enjoy. Good afternoon, Bulls. It is April 28th, and it is Friday. You're listening to Bulls Radio, WSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus, and always streaming worldwide at bullsradio.org. It is 3 o'clock, and you know what that means. Yes, you are listening to Anthro Alert. For the next hour, we will be talking about all things anthropological. If you've tuned into our shows previously, you know that we will be talking about anthropology and why it matters. Each week, we discuss how anthropology is relevant, and over time, we have various guests from the Department of Anthropology here at USF to discuss their research and to have them weigh in on everyday topics or current events. We believe that this is a good opportunity for anthropologists to better connect with the USF uh, larger community and to raise awareness of the value of an anthropological perspective. Uh, we like to preface our shows with the disclaimer um, that the statements that we make and the, pin, uh, the opinions that we express on AnthroAlert are our own and may not necessarily be representative of anthropology as a discipline, the USF Anthropology Department, USF, or student government. I am Spencer, and I am Renee. Welcome. This week, this week we have, well, we have a great show this week. You know, we have a great show every week. But today, I think we do. I, I certainly <laughs> do. Today we have an excellent show. This week we have Dr. Christian Wells and graduate student Gabby Lehigh on the show. Thank you both for, for coming on and joining us on the show. Uh, today we're going to be talking about their EPA-funded project to develop or to address environmentally-based health disparities associated with brownfields and land reuse sites in the USF area. Brownfields constrain growth and jeopardize community and public health. Tampa Bay has the highest number of brownfield sites in Florida, numbering over 100. Brownfield sites can be found in poor and underserved communities that already face limited access to fresh foods, outdoor recreation, and health care. Research has shown that brownfield communities have disproportionately higher levels of heart disease, cancer, asthma, and infant mortality than communities without brownfields. For social, economic, and environmental sustainability, empowering communities to transform brownfields to health fields is key. And that's the, the general gist of what we're talking about today. Um, so let's bring in Dr. Christian Wells. Hi. Hi, Renee uh, and Spencer. Thanks so much for having me here. Thank you for joining us. And Gabby? Hi. Thanks for having us, Renee. We appreciate it. Why don't you guys introduce yourself a little bit before we get into our main topic of the day? Sure. So I'm Christian Wells. I'm a professor of anthropology. Uh, most of my work is in environmental anthropology, uh, focusing particularly on issues of environmental contamination and pollution and environmental justice. Uh, and I'm also director of the Center for Brownfields Research and Redevelopment at USF. So this was a, a research center established back in the 19, uh, late 1990s, uh, and the only research center that addresses brownfields issues uh, in the state of Florida um, at a, a, a university. Um, and it was really started to um, help com work with communities in the greater Tampa Bay area address environmental contamination and pollution issues uh, that they have and really connect faculty and student uh, scientific expertise at USF with communities to, to try to address some of these uh, pollution contamination issues. 
and I'm joined with my uh, colleague in crime, Gabby Lehigh. You want to introduce yourself? Yes. Um, so my name is Gabby Lehigh, and I am a second-year master's student in the uh, Department of Anthropology, going for my uh, degree in applied anthropology. And um, I've been so fortunate to work with Christian the two years that I have been here at USF so far. And um, not only is he my academic advisor, but he's kind of my boss. So I'm a graduate assistant to him, too. And friend. And, and friend, yes. Um, he often babysits my rabbit for me um, when I go <laughs> away on holidays. But, um, yes, we work together um, on Brownfields, and I've been a part of the Center for Brownfields um, redevelopment. Uh, but it's it's been a great journey with Christian so far, and I look forward to um, the future working with him. That's okay, Ec- excellent. Let's let's talk a little bit more about this this brownfield project. That that's why we're here today. So let's let's hear some of the of the uh, like a, an overview of the project, and then more. D- we'll kind of delve into some more of those details. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, this is a, a project that's funded by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. And it's called uh, Brownfield's Area-Wide Assessment Planning Grant. So it's really designed to um, develop a public-private partnership between the University of South Florida and governmental and non-governmental organizations in the community to try to come together and identify uh, brownfield areas. Uh, These are areas that are um, either environmentally polluted or contaminated in some way, or simply areas that are degraded that community residents think are environmentally polluted or contaminated in some way. So this really fits in the realm of anthropology, I think, because um, it's all about perception. Um, and so that's something actually that, that Gabby can talk about later, but that's what she's she's studying for her master's uh, degree. Uh, but the EPA grant started, as, uh, started through some conversations we had with um, a local community uh, organization called the University Area Community Development Corporation. Uh, or what we call the UACDC, the University Area CDC. And that's an organization located less than a mile from campus uh, that's dedicated to uh, transforming the university area community, the neighborhood uh, adjacent to USF, and and helping with housing redevelopment issues, uh, jobs, uh, access to health care, access to recreation. It's doing a lot of work in, in the community. Um, and so we started having conversations with them and, and what their interests and needs were. And then we got together and we decided to apply for this EPA grant that seemed really like a very good fit. Did they come to you as a researcher to help them address these problems? Or did you sort of um, find out about these organizations and then approach them for this project? Well, um, it's funny you should ask. <laughs> the Department of Anthropology has this really long relationship with the university area community starting in the 1970s. Mm. Uh, we had a, a faculty member who's now faculty emerita, uh, Dr. Susan Greenbaum, and she started working with community members in the 70s and ended up producing several master's theses um, over, over the years. And so we'd already had a pretty good relationship with them and, and ongoing conversations and smaller kind of projects. Um, but it wasn't until um, maybe... Uh, really early last year that we started to sit down and, and say, well, how can we really use the expertise of this Center for Brownfields research? Um, are there brownfields in the community even? Um, and that's when the director, the CEO of the CDC, uh, Sarah Combs, took me for a walk uh, in the neighborhood to see 
a lot of the environmental problems that they're having and, and uh, a lot of the blight and a lot of the cleanup that's needed. Um, and so then we just uh, partnered from there and, and started to pull together all the different uh, community partners, both in government and NGOs, uh, that, that would be interested in working together. And, and we got together a team of about 12 different organizations that we're working with now, and we meet periodically and, and address these issues. So, How long have you guys been working on this project, I guess, from inception to where you are now? The planning phase and the application uh, for the grant happened last year, so we've been we've been doing this for a, b- a little over a year now. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, just on just past um, uh, New Year's, it was I think January fifth. I got the much anticipated call from the U.S. EPA that we had been awarded this grant, and so we were really very excited to hear that. But we were also kind of a little bit uh, uncertain. Because we had also just heard in you know the media buzz with the new administration coming in and, and the White House that the EPA might be downsized or budgets cut or, or even dismantled, and so we were really concerned. Um, and it was toward the end of January that I saw in the Washington Post and a, and a couple of other uh, newspapers that you know they had these uh, headlines: EPA freezes all grants. And so I got really worried at that point, uh, and I called EPA and I. S- you know, I wanted to know wh- what would be the future of this this big project we'd been planning on for so long, um, and it was radio silence. Uh, and then I saw in the headline, not only EPA freezes grants, but um, EPA directs staff not to ta- tell anybody in the community or talk with anybody in the community. So we were really nervous at that point. We had about a month and a half to two months of real uncertainty. Um, and thankfully, about a month later, the, the freeze thawed, and we were able to develop a cooperative agreement between USF and, and EPA, and here we are today. Do you anticipate that being a problem in, in the future as these discussions yeah. sort of unfold on uh, attitudes of environmental regulation? Yeah, that's a great question, and, and something that a lot of people ask me, what's, what's the future hold? And, you know, talking with um, our, our contacts with the EPA, everybody's just saying that we're just going to do our job and we're not going to think about, you know, all kinds of possible things that can happen in the future because, Mm -hmm. you know, politics change Mm -hmm. on a dime all the time. Mm -hmm. And so we're just going to keep on keeping on. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Just focus on what you can do right now. Yeah, yeah. All right, so so I'd like to ask the question because I'm not entirely clear. uh, What are brownfields? How would I know if if I have a brownfield in my neighborhood? Mm. That's a really good question. Um, So like I mentioned before, brownfields are either – um, contaminated land or water, really, um, or it's property that people think are contaminated in some way. So a lot of it has to do with uh, history of land use and your knowledge of the history of land use. Um, you might think that there would be contamination, for example, if uh, there was a, a gas station there uh, or a former dry cleaners or some type of industry that produced chemicals. Um, and so it's really your knowledge of land use and, and land history um, in the area that might might clue you in. Uh, but there are a lot of brownfields where you don't even quite realize that there could have been any kind of environmental pollutants released um, into the into the environment. Um, for example, um, uh, golf courses uh, back in the you know 40s and 50s and maybe into the 60s, golf courses. Used uh, different kinds of pesticides that were arsenic-based, and so there are some historical golf courses that are contaminated with arsenic. 
Um, I mean, they're you know beautifully landscaped and manicured lawns, and they don't look contaminated at all, but you really don't know what's under the surface. So it's really about understanding land use history. So following this idea of, of land use history, um, uh, in our previous discussions, you told us that there's quite a few brownfields in, in the greater Tampa Bay area. So yeah. uh, do you know what's, I guess, in the history of Tampa Bay that there's so many brownfields in, in and around this area? Yeah, there's there's about 100 um, in total in various stages of cleanup or um, closure. Um, uh, and it's really because of Tampa's area, Tampa, the Tampa's location on the I-4 corridor. Uh, there's just been so much development over the past century that um, from small businesses to large, you know, industry um, has opened and closed and, and just created um, situations that either did result in some type of pollution or contamination or or might have and, and still hasn't really been assessed. Okay, so then looking at, I think we, we talked about the correlation between brownfields and health. Can you, I mean, would you be able to explain or, t- or talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, so um, there are a lot of different kinds of environmental pollutants and contaminants that have adverse impacts on people's health. Um, uh, Some of the classic examples that you might have heard of in the news recently, uh, Flint, Michigan, for example, with lead in the water. You can also get lead from lead pipes um, and the lead deposited in soil. And you don't necessarily want to put a grocery store there or a daycare center there. there are a lot of other activities that have resulted in uh, chemical pollutants that are harmful for humans' health. Um, another big one that used to be in the Tampa Bay area, um, you know, 40, 50 years ago, was the use of pressure-treated wood, and that resulted in the deposition of arsenic. Um, but, you know, there are all kinds of things. That one of the more famous, I guess infamous, famous brownfields in the Tampa Bay area is uh, the site of IKEA, Downtown, that used to be a, a bottling manufacturing plant. It was a really large brownfield, and IKEA came in and they made use of a lot of different uh, tax benefits that the state of Florida offers uh, companies and businesses to come in and redevelop a brownfield site. So that's a, a real famous one. One of the more recent ones, uh, also downtown, is where the the very delicious restaurant Ulele is right now. That used to be a, a brownfield site, and that whole Waterworks Park area was redeveloped really nicely. Great. So I think it's about time that we take a short break for some music and we will come back and discuss more on the health effects of brownfields possibly and the perceptions of brownfield cleanup. All right, everyone. Thank you for tuning back into Anthro Alert. I'm going to have a quick PSA from one of our sponsors uh, here on USF campus. Student organizations, would you and your members like to learn more about student government? Involvement opportunities, events, and other campus resources for student organizations? Student Government's Department of Student Outreach and Access is available to come present at your next meeting. If you're interested in having Student Government give a presentation in your student organization meeting, visit tinyurl.com sgppresentations to fill out a request form. Or visit the Forms tab on the Student Government Bullsync page. Thank you. All right, let's uh, get back into our conversation um, about brown fields and its correlations with health. Renee? Yeah, so I, so I have a, a very good question. Well, I, th- I think all my questions are good, but I, ha- I have an exceptionally good question. <laughs> this and one in particular. This one, this one in particular. But I want to ask Gabby, 
what what's the what's the relationship between brownfields and health fields? This this is your you know your area of thesis research. Yes, that's the correct. Okay. So, um, oh, what my thesis research is really looking at is um, the perceptions of blighted space within the university area um, community. And what the UACDC, or the University Area Community Development Corporation, is doing is they're taking a, um, it's a seven-acre plot located in the very center of the university area, and um, they're going to be um, turning it into what would be considered a green space or a health field. And what that means is exactly what it kind of sounds like, you know, turning it into a park, um, a place that creates he- healthy benefits to community members. Um, and some of those examples might be um, putting in outdoor work equipment, outdoor um, workout equipment or, or trails for running or walking, um, an outdoor gymnasium kind of idea, playground for children. Um, they're also, um, they've actually currently already put in a community garden, which is helping to provide healthy food and access to healthy food for community members that um, live in um, an area that lacks access to grocery stores with healthy foods. A lot of the area is surrounded by fast foods. Um, so um, the nice thing about brownfields is once it's redeveloped, it can really turn into uh, a health field and be extremely beneficial for community members um, instead of, you know, these these residents that are living in poverty and lack of healthy foods. This gives them a new opportunity to um, to better their health for themselves, for their family, for their future generations, too. If I can just jump in here, I, w- I just wanted to say that um, the work that Gabby's doing with the University Area CDC is really innovative because... The goal usually of Brownfield's redevelopment is simply to redevelop the plot of land. It could be another business. It could be another gas station, you know, <laughs> that would cause, you know, more environmental degradation. Mm-hmm. Um, but the work that Gabby's interested in is health fields so that we don't redevelop it for another business that's going to pollute the environment again, but a, uh, a, a business or a redevelopment effort that's designed to improve people's health. And that's what's really innovative about what she's doing. So what is what is the process of turning a brownfield into a health field like? And um, how is th- this project that you're working on, how are they working towards building these health fields? That's a great question. Um, one of the first steps in uh, redeveloping a brownfield is determining that a specific piece of land or property or water is contaminated to begin with. Um, And sometimes that's difficult because uh, there's a lack of land use records or there's a lack of any type of testing done on soil or water. Um, So the particular um, project that I'm working on with Harvest Hope Park, um, there has been an environmental impact assessment that has, is that correct? Is that what that's called? Yes. Um, That has taken place, Um, but it has not been classified specifically as a brownfield but there's still a perception of contamination because there is a pond on the property and there's an excessive amount of garbage and and um and there's algal blooms in the water that shows that over time there's been um environmental degradation on this property so the first step is kind of defining that an area is a brownfield and then the second step is to come up with the most appropriate solution to address the extent of the environmental um, pollution. 
So, so then how do you as an anthropologist, like how is that anthropological perspective valuable in this effort? Um, it, it's very valuable because, it, like I said, this particular plot of land, Harvest Hope Park, isn't registered as a brownfield um, within the uh, Florida Department of Environmental Protection. But when I go around and I talk to community members, they can see that there is environmental degradation. There's trash. There's, you know, couches sitting in the middle of the lawn. There's, you know, there's physical evidence of pollution here. And so when I talk to them, they t- they they you know, express these feelings to me that they would like to see the space cleaned up so that it it feels healthier to them. It feels healthier to the community. It gives them a space um, to to be healthier despite the challenges that they face in this community. So are these, do you believe that maybe certain communities um, are particularly prone to hosting brownfields or how do, how do brownfields usually pop up? Is it just highly, I guess, places that are really developed with businesses like we'd mentioned before how do communities i guess come come about in having a brownfield absolutely um there's there's obviously a trend with um if you look at historical records with industrialization areas that are high in industry or uh pre-industry um historically are more likely going to have uh brownfields the other unfortunate side of this is the idea behind environmental justice where unfortunately minority groups, low-income individuals, individuals that are suffering from a lot of these social challenges um, are more than likely going to be the ones that are most impacted by these areas. So so then again, asking the question about, you know, the anthropological perspective, how how, how do you think that's helped you personally in this project? I think it reminds me that environmental justice does happen. It can happen in your own backyard, even if you don't see it. And sometimes, um, you know, it, as an anthropologist, it's not—it's not our—it's not, um, not our right to go in there and say that you know somebody's community is wrong or it's up or you know something needs to change in it. Uh, the power in anthropology is really being able to communicate with community members to get their perspective on um, on what things they want to see change and how they want to see that change happen. Because that's not our job to tell them what needs to happen. It's our job to help them. Um, you know, define their own problems and create their own solutions to those problems. And if I could just add, anthropology's had a, an extraordinary impact on environmental justice in general in the U.S. Um, so in, uh, toward the end of 1992, after um, Clinton was elected president, the EPA opened up an Office of Environmental Justice for the very first time. And at that time, 1992 to 93, there happened to be uh, an anthropologist by the name of Gregory Button uh, from uh, Minnesota. I, I think it's Minnesota. And he was working as a congressional fellow on behalf of the American Anthropological Association attached to the staff of the uh, uh, senator from Minnesota at the time, Senator Wellstone. Uh, and the anthropologist um, worked to create legislation that would direct all federal agencies to consider environmental justice issues in terms of their research expenditure, all of their expenditures. That legislation eventually kind of languished in Congress. So in 1994, then-President Clinton uh, picked it up and made it a really famous, now famous, um, executive order uh, called Executive Order 12898. 
that directed, uh, and he used the language of the this anthropologist to direct all federal agencies to consider environmental justice issues in everything that it does. Now that had a you know a profound impact on the distribution of resources in uh, in the United States, but it was um, really compounded because you know go back in time in the late 1970s with President Carter, and he enacted legislation. Forget what it was called exactly. It's the international finance legislation that directed all foreign uh, governments and foreign agencies that accept uh, U.S. funds. They have to abide by U.S. federal laws. And so once that um, environmental justice executive order was implemented, it wasn't just U.S. federal agencies that had to comply with environmental justice issues, but it was anyone outside of the United States receiving federal money. So that had an enormous impact on the world and the distribution of resources around the world. And it all came back to this one anthropologist who was really committed. He was an environmental anthropologist. He still is. He's still alive. Uh, An environmental anthropologist and medical anthropologist who was really committed to these kinds of social justice issues. So it just, you know, goes to show a single anthropologist can have an extraordinary influence throughout the entire world. Um, in terms of policy and advocacy and, and doing applied anthropological work. I didn't know that, but that's that's really interesting. Um, I think that sort of speaks to what Gabby was talking about also, but um, when you're doing environmental justice issues but also engaging with the local community um, in those partnerships, when you're doing um, these environmental justice projects, have you guys, in, or I guess Gabby in particular in your thesis research, have you encountered any... Um, pushback from any of the communities that you guys have worked with about um, revitalizing some of these properties or? Um, Yeah, um, I personally, with the participants that I've been working with so far, um, most of them have been very, very positive about the redevelopment because um, most of them have families um, and they're really excited to have the opportunity to, you know, be outside with their families and, um, and experience the wonderful sunshine that we have here in Florida. But um, at the same time, the UACDC has been facing a, a little bit of pushback from the community. Um, even though I haven't personally experienced that, there there have been some stories about that that I've been hearing about from the um, UACDC staff. What are uh, some of these issues, if you could just briefly touch on some of these? I, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that... Um, the community doesn't exactly know what's going on with mm-hmm. the park. You know, um, when the planning process started um, happening, you know, there um, there's a building on the site, and, um, you know, they started painting some different murals o- all over the building, and community residents were like, okay, what's going on? We don't know what this is. And I think um, some community members were a little reluctant to the change just because they didn't understand um, but now that the UACDC has started to do a little bit more on reaching out with community members, holding different events at the park, um, we've had more community members come out and be supportive and, and interested in learning what's going on and putting in their own ideas of what they'd like to see in the space. How are the community members in, engaging uh, with like the UACDC and USF and different researchers? Are there town halls that are being held? Are they maybe are they coming to what kind of events? they coming to to contribute there okay yeah um 
I believe last summer the UACDC had an open, you know, an open forum where community members could come and voice their opinions, things that they'd like to see in the park. And some of those ideas came to fruition, you know. Um, that includes um, the, the playground for kids, a multi-purpose field. These are some of the things the community wanted. At the same time, the UACDC has also just um, started an organization called the UALC, which is the University Areas Leader Leaders Collective. And it's starting to get pool community members in um, so that they can create their own little leadership team to help make some of these decisions and pull other community members in so they can kind of take their own agency in this to um, to help revitalize the whole community, not just Harvest Hope Park, in their own kind of idea. This has been really important for our EPA um, planning grant, um, ways to get the community involved. And so one of the things we're going to be doing over the next year is having a series of workshops or town hall meetings uh, really designed to target specific stakeholder groups in the community. Uh, this is a community that has um, about uh, 40% uh, Hispanic, about 30% African American. There are about 20% uh, veterans in the community because of its location near the Veterans Hospital. So there are particular um, uh, parts of the community that we really want to target with uh, really directed kinds of, of workshops and, and town hall meetings. So over the next year, we'll be holding a series of these workshops at the University Area CDC, but also at other places throughout the community. The new, beautiful new public library that's going up. Um, there's a, a really large um, uh, church. I think it's a Baptist church, crossover uh, church. Um, and really important, and that's a partner to our EPA grant, is Mort Elementary. It's a really big elementary, uh, Title I elementary school that serves pretty much all of the elementary age um, children in the, in the community. That's great. Um, we're going to take another quick break. Um, we're going to come to a, another announcement from our sponsors here on campus. How are the community members in, engaging it with like the UACDC and USF and different researchers? Are there town halls that are being held? Are they maybe are they coming to what kind of events are they coming to to contribute there? Okay, yeah. Um I believe last summer the UACDC had an open, you know, an open forum where community members could come and voice their opinions, things that they'd like to see in the park. And some of those ideas came to fruition, you know. Um, that includes um, the, the playground for kids, a multi-purpose field. These are some of the things the community wanted. At the same time, the UACDC has also just um, started an organization called the UALC, which is the University Areas leader leaders collective and it's starting to get pool community members in um so that they can create their own little leadership team to help make some of these decisions and pull other community members in so they can kind of take their own agency in this to um to help revitalize the whole community not just harvest hope park in their own kind of idea this has been really important for our epa um, planning grant um, ways to get the community involved and so one of the things we're going to be doing over the next year is having a series of workshops or town hall meetings uh, really designed to target specific stakeholder groups in the community. Uh, this is a community that has um, about 40% uh, uh, Hispanic, about 30% African American. There are about 20% uh, veterans in the community because of its location near the Veterans Hospital. So there are particular um, uh, parts of the community that we really want to target with uh, really directed kinds of, of workshops and, and town hall meetings. 
So over the next year, we'll be holding a series of these workshops at the university area, CDC, but also at other places throughout the community. The new, beautiful new public library that's going up, um, there's a, a really large um, uh, church. I think it's a Baptist church, crossover uh, church. Um, and really important, and that's a partner to our EPA grant, is Mort Elementary. It's a really big elementary, uh, Title I elementary school that serves pretty much all of the elementary age um, children in the, in the community. That's great. Um, we're going to take a, another quick break. Um, we're going to come to a, another announcement from our sponsors here on campus. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Bulls Radio, WUSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus and streaming worldwide at bullsradio.org. Let's get back into the conversation. Yeah, so we're talking about uh, brown fields, health fields. Why does any of this matter? Um, Well, it matters. It really does. So that's why we're here. We're, We're here to talk about that stuff. Um, now, earlier in the show, we mentioned transitioning or transforming some of these brown fields into green spaces and health fields, and I wanted to ask more about why is th- how would that be important? Why does that matter? What's the benefit of of and I sounds I'm going to sound silly saying this, but what's the benefit of increasing opportunities for leisure time, physical activity, and access to healthy foods? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, just to clarify, health fields are not only outdoor recreational areas, but they could also be health clinics. Uh, they could also be access to uh, healthy foods. Uh, right now, for example, the university area community is classified as um, uh, underserved in terms of health access to health care, and it's also become recently a bit of a food desert. Uh, there was a large uh, grocery store that served the, the community that just went out of business. And so now people have very few options um, in terms of access to food. And it's a, it's a unique community also in that um, there was a survey that came out, the American Community Survey, the, the big one that comes out every once in a while, and it showed that about a quarter of the residents don't have access to any transportation at all. So they're really dependent on public transportation, which, you know, in that area, it's not, not that well served. It's also a unique community in that it's surrounded by municipalities, right? So on the south, you have the city of Tampa. On the north, you've got uh, Lutz and Carrollwood. Um, but that particular community is unincorporated Hillsborough County. There's no municipality willing to incorporate it. They don't want the problems associated with it. They don't want the, all the development challenges and the, the economic challenges. And so it's really been kind of a neglected island um, in the middle of this urban sprawl. And as a result, it has a lot of capital infrastructure challenges, a lack of sidewalks, a lack of uh, street lights, uh, you know, for the evening. Um, all of these things kind of combine to really create major challenges for people to get access to uh, health services and healthy food and, and just opportunities to live a healthy life. Wow. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Sorry to depress you, yeah, Spencer. That's, 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 a lot to, that's a lot to take in. So what... Um, can you, I guess, elaborate more on some of these economic challenges and maybe how we can address some of these? Well, the good news for economic challenges is uh, that the U- that well, University of South Florida has become a partner in creating uh, what used to be called the Tampa Innovation Alliance, and it's now called um, uh, Innovation Place. Is that what it's called, Gabby? Yes, it that's just changed name. its name recently. Innovation Place. So Innovation Place 
partnered with uh, the county and the university area CDC, and they recently got a $4.5 million tech hire grant from the government, which would allow them to focus on training people in the neighborhood for technology-oriented jobs, just like the ones that you guys have here at the radio station. Um, and so there's all kinds of new economic opportunities that are slowly opening up. So that's that's been a real positive thing that's happened recently. I, I would like to just step in and clarify that we are not paid for this. <laughs> 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 this, this is uh, this is just a this is a a wonderful project, uh, courtesy of uh, USF student government. Go Bulls! All right, um, back back along the lines of of e- uh, economic impact. Uh, would would either of you be able to kind of elaborate more on the the benefits of transitioning these communities um, in terms of economic impact? Like how how does how does focusing our attention on this on these problems on this situation how does it improve the economic outlook for communities? That's a big question. <laughs> I'm going to turn it over to Gabby. No. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, from yeah, Gabby, you can comment on this too. But from my perspective, it is something that I mean, we're applied anthropologists. We go in this community and we're working with community members, and this is something that people want. They want access to resources that they don't have right now. They want access to good jobs, good-paying jobs. They want to live um, better or healthier lives, and that's what we're doing through this, this EPA grant through this partnership. So, so then. You know, if if maybe I don't necessarily understand um, exactly what's going on, but then, so if I I heard that, I could potentially say, well, they could just uh, those people they could just move somewhere else. (laughs) Where are they going to move? How are they going to move? You know, one of the 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 misnomers about this community it's it's kind of a famous or infamous community in uh, the Tampa Bay area, but really in the state of Florida, it's. In the past, it's and I think it's currently still with some neighbors, it's pejoratively referred to as suitcase city because there's this perception by people who don't live in the community that people are constantly cycling in and out of this community because it is about 95% rental. A lot of apartments, condos, and rental homes. And so the perception is that there's just this constant flux of people moving in and out. Um, but it turns out uh, there's been some really great anthropological research in the uh, 90s even uh, by Beverly Ward and Susan Greenbaum and others that showed quite clearly that these people are poor, but they're not stupid. <laughs> when a new um, condo complex opens up and the manager says, all right, if you move in here, we'll give you one month's free rent, people move. They move from one place to another, but within the community. So there's a lot of internal circulation, but it's not external circulation. So it's really you know, a, a total misnomer to call it suitcase city. Uh, there's people that have been living there now for generations, and they really like their community. They value their community, and they want access to resources. They want to be part of the greater community, and they kind of feel cut off right now, kind of feel like they're on an island, and in many ways it is an island. So to those individuals that are being trained for these technical jobs that you had previously mentioned, how does that sort of push up against the lack of transportation to get to companies where they can use these skills? Boy, that's a major part of the, the problem, major part of the issue. Uh, and that's why, that's one of the really great benefits of this EPA USF um, grant is it's going to allow us to get together all of the different plans that are going on um, from the planning commission 
transportation, uh, the county, capital improvements, um, economic development, health, environment, and I could go on and on. There's so many different plans floating around out there, and we all know that for this to be a sustainable effort and for there to be real change, that everybody's got to come together because it's all integrated. And that's what anthropology is about, right? Holism, mm -hmm. a holistic perspective. And so I think our sort of, well, I hate to say it, but positionality, <laughs> as <laughs> sorry, Renee, as, uh, as anthropologists, though, really allow us to bring together all of these diverse partners and show all of these complicated interactions. We work with, um, we do a lot of work with environmental engineers in the, the Center for Brownfields Research, and there's one graduate student at USF, um, Christy Prouty, who has um, characterized the difference between <laughs> engineers and anthropologists. She says, engineers have brains like waffles. You know, you pour the syrup in, and it goes into one compartment, flows over to the next, goes into the next compartment. It's very structured. But she said, working with anthropologists, anthropologists have brains like spaghetti. You follow one <laughs> strand, it gets into this big messy ball, maybe some meatballs in there, it comes out the other. It's really complex. And so to marry those two, um, you know, so, you know, quote-unquote hard science with social science, uh, you get spaghetti and waffles. Uh, but you get a better meal, I, I think. I, I'm visualizing that now. And <laughs> I, so am I. <laughs> I. I'm not sure that that's a dinner or breakfast that I would like to try. It well could they, be both. Well, they do fried chicken and waffles, which is quite good. So yeah. try spaghetti and waffles. Okay. Well, <laughs> we will. That'll be the update for next week if I. <laughs> turns into a cooking it. show. Let, let me ask about long, long term. So, what are some long term outcomes that we're, we're looking for as a result of this work? Well, this is the first phase of a multi-phase effort. This is a big project. The, the community's got about 10,000 people, and it's pretty big. How long do you anticipate it going on for? So the first phase is this planning phase where we're getting all these plans together, coming up with a redevelopment uh, plan and idea, and shopping it around in the community and tinkering with it and building it over time. So that's going to take about a year and a half. But doing so then will allow us to apply for uh, the next phase of grants from the EPA, which are called uh, assessment grants, that then allow us to go in and do targeted social, environmental, and health impact assessments of the redevelopment plan. Phase three, then, would be cleaning up the environment and working on um, the economic redevelopment issues. So this is probably going to be at least a five-year effort, and we're at the starting mm -hmm. line right wow. now. We're at, okay. at day one. Wow. Okay. Um, so yeah, like uh, what Renee was asking, what are some what are some outcomes that you guys are are working towards, or I guess idealistically, what would be the best case scenario for the end of this project? Yeah, yeah. So to, to, to maybe further elaborate, so in five years, what's what's something that we we can visualize and say that this was uh, this was successful, or this aspect of the project was successful? Um, and again, Gabby can comment on this too, but I envision it as a neighborhood where people want to live there. They want to stay there. They want to be there. They want to raise their kids there because they know that it's a beautiful neighborhood and it's safe and it's clean in many ways and it's quiet and it's a healthy place to live. Is that what you're you're getting, Gabby, the sense in, you know, in speaking with people in the community? Yeah, for the most part. <coughs> and I think um, what a lot of people are really looking for and maybe – maybe from my perspective, too, is changing some of those numbers that we talked about earlier. Um, you know, the level of poverty, the number of individuals that are um, dependent on public transportation, you know, the lack of um, access to health centers, those kind of changing those numbers and um, making them more in a positive light. Okay, great. 
Uh, Gabby, can I maybe ask you to, you know, come away with some or, or leave us with some, some closing remarks on on what you hope to uh, see in, in your thesis work? Um, <coughs> um, well, looking at it from um, from a from a very particular perspective. Um, I'd like to see. I'd l- I'd like to aid the the U- the university area CDC in um, being able to en- engage with community more and in better ways, um, coming up with su- some new a- ideas and new ways to um, work with the community. And then I think looking on a larger scale, what I've really really would like to see is just um, just really kind of creating an example of how community centers in any location anywhere in the world can have an impact have a really positive developmental impact on families in every aspect social environmental health uh, you know all those aspects that we talked about just really um showing that you know there are and we all know that areas like this exist where there's high poverty and there's no fresh food and there's a lack of health centers we all know they exist but i think really putting out the message that you know there is a way for organizations to work with the community to solve some of these problems with community input and really creating these collaborative um these collaborative efforts between these groups dr wells i'd ask a a similar question you know what are um, what are you hoping to see out of, see out of this project yeah, specific to because you're 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 mentoring um, Gabby in this so wh- wh- from your perspective what would you like to see what she said <laughs> <laughs> actually she said it really beautifully um, there's been historically and there still is somewhat of a town and gown divide between the university and the community and these kinds of projects are really important for breaking down that divide and getting USF out into the community and and to be more community engaged. I mean, a lot of people don't know it, but this university area community uh, used to be the area where USF students lived. Back in the 1970s, this is, you know, when there weren't dorms on campus, that's where USF students lived. And now it's a real shame, and actually I think it's unacceptable that this kind of, of poverty and these kinds of social and economic challenges are right here less than a block away from the university. The university has so many talented people, so many skilled scientists. There's no reason why that we should have this this level of of poverty and and social injustice and environmental injustice so close to the university or at all. This is a real opportunity for uh, students at USF to get involved, get engaged, and help out in the community. I think it's a responsibility of USF students. I agree. There is that opportunity to invest in the immediate community. So it's part of uh, USF is part of the community. The community is part of USF and and really thinking of it in that holistic perspective. Uh, So we're going to take a a break and we'll be back in a few minutes. Um, So, yeah, we'll just play a little bit of music and we'll be back to close the show. All right, everyone. This is the conclusion of Anthro Alert. Um, I would like to remind all of our listeners, if you enjoyed the conversation today and would like to get a summary um, and learn more about what we talked about, you can do that if you so choose on anthroalert.com. And we also have all the music listed uh, on the webpage as well. So if you would like to go back and see what we played on today's show, you can do that. Um, that's going to be 
all we have for today. So I would like to thank Dr. Christian Wells and Gabby for joining us. Thank you, guys. Thank you. And we will see everyone next week.